everyone's left with some form of that and they all look a little different and my hope is that you know we can change the course of these treatments that maybe someday they aren't so harsh and don't rob so much from these children hi we are colleen and colleen and we have made it our mission to spread kindness and make everyone feel like they belong So each week we will share real life stories, motivating insights, and helpful tips that will inspire you to live a kinder, happier life. We believe that together we can make the world a much better place. Are you in? I'm in. Let's do this. Welcome to the You Fit Here podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of You Fit Here. I am CB, and today we have a special guest, Heidi Frank. I first learned of Heidi through a fundraiser on Facebook and was so moved by her story. And fate would have it that we would end up living very close to each other in the future. So I wanted all of you to be moved just like I was, because we never know how our worlds can be changed in a split second. So welcome, Heidi. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you. I want everyone listening to take a minute, and I want you to imagine that you are a mom or a dad or a sister or an aunt, someone, and you probably all are some version of that person. Now, imagine someone so close to you, your son, your daughter, your sister, your parent, is diagnosed with a rare form of cancer that, frankly, there aren't any good options for. There are no proven cures for the cancer, and your whole world turns upside down and there's nothing you can do but fight yourself to find a cure for your loved one. It has to be beyond devastating. People don't want to imagine this, but this happens every single day. And Heidi doesn't have to imagine this. Heidi's son Gus was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive form of cancer called Ewing sarcoma when he was just four years old. He went from a dirt and frog loving little boy to a fighter overnight. Heidi, can you take us back to before the diagnosis and tell us about Gus leading up to it? Yes, of course. So um, this was in the fall of 2018. And so Gus was in a little 4K, you know, preschool program at a little school right down the road from us and was just as you said, super active, happy, um, four-year-old, very busy. He has an older sister, so he'd just be chasing her and our dog around most days. And um, there was a, um, a day that he came home from preschool and he was complaining that his leg hurt. And he doesn't really ever cry or talk about being in pain. Um, so that was kind of surprising, but um, he, I think he ended up taking a little nap and then we were driving to get his sister from her school in the afternoon and he really started crying hard in the back of the car and saying his leg hurts so bad. So I called the school, I talked to the administration, the teachers, I asked, you know, were there any notes from recess or when they were in the gym where he would have fallen or hurt himself? And they said, no, you know, we don't see any incident reports like that. And they, they hadn't said anything like that when I picked him up, but I just wanted to be sure So that night, uh, I remember we were supposed to go to swim class and I canceled it because he was still in pain. And then by, you know, six or seven o'clock, he was running around our house. And so I thought, okay, maybe he pulled a muscle or there's just some slight fracture. Who knows? So that night he woke up in the middle of the night crying and he had a really low grade fever, but something just fell off. 
So I called our pediatrician in the morning. I didn't take him to school. And I said, you know, here's what's going on. Um, so she said, why don't you go to an urgent care associated with our clinic and get it, get it imaged, get an x-ray. So I took Gus, we went and got an x-ray and we were waiting for the doctor to come back in the room. And when she walked in, I, I saw the look on her face and I just, everything kind of stopped. Um, and she said, I, I, I'll pull up the image for you but this is really serious and you need to go to children's like, do not go home. I need you to go directly from here to there. And I said, okay. And she showed me in his femur, there was just a massive, it looked like a hole huge, like at the bottom of his little four-year-old femur. And so I called my husband, we walked back out to the car and I think one or both of us were like getting over a cold. And I called my husband, he was doing his employee reviews. And I said, I know you have a jam-packed day of employee reviews, but like I, this, something is really, really wrong. You need to come to Children's. So we went to the ER and, um, oh my gosh, they did all kinds of tests, imaging, blood work. Um, and, you know, some of the markers were a little bit elevated, but there wasn't anything that they could really pinpoint. Um, at that point, this is like so sad to say, but we were really hopeful that it was a bone infection. And that's what had caused, you know, things to erode and be eaten away. Um, so we ended up, they put us in, you know, just the regular um, like 10th floor where you just get checked in while you're waiting to hear results for these sorts of things. And um, they performed some more imaging. I think it was an MRI. And the radiologist told us when he read the imaging, you guys, I think it's an infection. I'm like 99% sure it's an infection. And we like fell on the floor. We were sobbing, hugging each other because we knew anything but that was going to be really bad. So we were so relieved. And then I, I actually left the hospital. Now we've been there a couple days waiting to see. And um, I was driving back home and all of a sudden it was supposed to be when they were going to go in and, you know, perform a surgery to remove it. And the timing kept getting pushed back and pushed back. And then what happened was there was an internal fight over, um, was it an infection actually, or was something else going on? And I think um, a new resident actually was the one who raised his hand and said, I, I think we should do a biopsy. I don't think this is right. And my husband was like, well, do we get a say? Like, we're the parents of this patient. And they said, yes. Um, that's a really good point. Yes, you should have an opinion here, or be able to voice it. And so we said, yeah, we would also opt for the biopsy to, to check and make sure. So um, the radiologist, he said, you know what, that's fine, but I know what's going to happen and it's, it's going to spill out and ooze out and it's kind of like a messy situation. So I prefer not to, but that's fine. We'll do the biopsy. And then he came back into the room after they did perform the biopsy and he was like, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be fluid. And when I poked in, there were some more hard particles and we don't know what it is. We're going to put some tissue on the slide and we'll wait for, um, you know, some cells to grow because we're waiting now for bacteria to prove that it's an infection. So we just sat in the hospital waiting for these cells to grow on the slide. Like, please let this be some sort of bacterial infection or viral infection or something. And then um, it was 
um, evening and Gus had fallen asleep because after the biopsy really hurt his leg. And so he wasn't able to be mobile. Um, like we had PT and OT come up to even get him to just walk around to go to the bathroom or walk down the hall it was really challenging because it really hurt. Um, so then, uh, yeah, so then all of a sudden Tim and I were sitting there talking and we saw some faces in the window and it was faces we hadn't seen before. And I was like, well, I know what department we haven't met with and it's oncology. Um, and so they came in and shared, yes, um, it is a form of cancer. There's these small blue cells on the slides that indicates that it's, it is a form of cancer. It's a bone cancer. And we don't know specifically yet because they have to do genetic sequencing, but um, that's what we're going to be battling. And they said, I mean, I guess you can go home. And then we were going to, it was over Thanksgiving. So it was um they said then come back and we'll have a conversation about like what exactly the diagnosis and the plan is so we left and we left um you know it was like eight or nine and my daughter was at my parents and my mom came and brought her and we just it was the most uneasy feeling because like now what <laughs> you go back home and nothing even looks the same as it did when you left a few days ago um so that was really really hard um and then with Ewing, it is a very, like you said, aggressive cancer. So they kind of hit the ground running. Um, I mean, we did a bone marrow biopsy to make sure that it wasn't in within his bone marrow. And then you do a port place. Um, we did, I'm trying to think if we did those at the same time. I think we did. And then he literally had his port in and the next day we started chemo. So they, um, they don't waste, waste any time. Um, one thing that we learned later is that getting a good biopsy and getting good tissue for be able to be able to perform sequencing and further research is really important. So that's something that we've kind of helped other people advocate for moving forward. Um, we didn't realize at the time how crucial that step was. And it really, really is because they said, well, it didn't come back as Ewing sarcoma, but it came back in that family of tumors. So they just treated it like it was Ewing. It could have been something similar or just slightly off. And some of those options are, believe it or not, far worse. So it was really a struggle for us all through his treatment. We basically didn't know. I mean, I think we found out at MSK, like right before the last treatment, which is terrible, that yes, indeed, it was Ewing sarcoma. And so thank God we were treating it the right way. Um, so Gus underwent 14 rounds of chemotherapy total. Um, the first half was done here at Children's. And um, in that time, we started looking into, um, um, the term is escaping me, um, local control is what they call whatever you're doing to treat the primary tumor area. Um, that can be surgical, that can be radiation, it can be a lot of, I mean, usually one or one of those paths or combination um, and each case is so different and we were very fortunate also that Gus's case he was not metastatic if you're metastatic meaning that the cancer has spread from your original tumor site typically Ewing will spread to the lungs uh, but it can go anywhere and we know people who have had hundreds of tumors all over their body so the fact that it was isolated in his one bone was um, kind of advantageous 
so we could perform surgery to have it removed. So we looked at options literally all over the country. We talked to surgeons everywhere. Um, the primary suggestion was some form of an amputation or a procedure called a rotationplasty um, that basically it's very hard to explain without showing you, but it, it takes your ankle joint and replaces your knee joint with your ankle joint. And then you would have a prosthetic limb from like your knee down. So it's a very good option in terms of mobility, but um, we just felt like there's got to be another answer out there. So then we ended up um, finding this surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, and he was able to perform um it's called distraction osteogenesis so basically two surgeries they remove your tumor wherever it is and then um in gus's case they remove the tumor and then so they took off the bottom four inches of his femur which is quite a big amount for a small child and um they kind of grew the bottom part of the femur using some screws and some calcium. They make like a putty to kind of reshape that part. And then they break the bone further up um, on the leg, like kind of up towards the hip and they insert a growing device. So it's a rod that telescopes. So for, let's see, like five months, I think we grew his leg every day with an external magnetic device that would wind um, this rod apart. And so it would slowly grow over time. Um, and he was still in treatment during this. So that that sort of um, impacted the, the amount of growth we could achieve. But we were presented with this option from the surgeon at MSK. And he has to tell people no to this all the time because either the location isn't right or, um, there's not enough bone to salvage or there's just, it has to be kind of a perfect alignment to make this work. And we had that. So every other surgeon that we talked to was like, that's not a realistic idea. They just didn't, no one supported it. Almost zero people. There was one oncologist in um, Cleveland who, who said, you know, that is a really good idea. You guys should look into that. So we went out to New York, Tim and I traveled out there while Gus was in treatment which was like horrifying um, to leave him behind and met with the team out there. And he was so immune and suppressed, like he really wouldn't be wise to have him travel, especially on the plane at that point. Um, but we went out, we met the team, we met the oncology team. We totally fell in love with them and we were like, okay, I guess we're doing this. So we moved to Manhattan for six months and like got an apartment there and did the whole back half of his treatment and all his surgeries there. Um, and man, you know, what a culture shift coming from Wisconsin, but I, I have to say, I'm so thrilled that we did that. Um, in addition to being able to salvage his leg, um, they perform genetic sequencing there for every patient. So every patient's tumor is sent in to get, um, to be explored that way. So that was how we were able to achieve the, you know, diagnosis, diagnosis, even though it was at the end of his treatment. Um, it was very reassuring for us to hear, to hear that. Um, so that was a, a massive move. Um, you know, we left our daughter behind for a month and then Tim and my daughter, Susan would travel back and forth and Gus and I stayed 
put in New York. And what was very strange was I was so reluctant to go there. I didn't want to go. I just loved our team here. I felt safe and comfortable. And we obviously have a huge network of friends and family here. And there we were, I was like, are we just lost in the crowd? Are we just a number? We have no personal connection to anyone or anything here. This is terrifying. And the first few days, I really did feel that way. I just was like, was this a huge mistake? What have we done? And then I didn't want to come back to Wisconsin by the end of it. I was like, I'll move here forever. I love it. I love our team. I don't want to leave. So that was a really weird juxtaposition. But I'm, like I said, I'm so glad um, that we went down that path. And there's a family here, or not here, they're in Boston, and they are considering going to MSK, and they actually just chose to do this. And they have this, they have a very similar situation where lots of other people have told them this is too risky, or this isn't a good choice, and they're leery of it. And then they met with the team, and they of course, love them, and now they're like, okay, we're going to go. And so it's kind of, I said, that decision-making choice, or part of the journey is is the hardest part it really is especially for us because Gus was four and so older children a lot of time parents will ask them what would you what would you like to do it's your body and you can't do that with a four-year-old you Mm -hmm. you can't it's not it's just wouldn't be fair to even allow his mind to go there and so it just the weight of having that decision on you as a parent is is so heavy. I so that's why we we worked so hard to feel good about the choice because we didn't want him to wake up and be 15 one day and look us in the eye and say, why did you do this? Why did you choose this path? And we needed to feel confident. Like we explored everything and we chose what was right for you and right for your care at the time. And that, so, so that was, that was crucial. Sorry. That was like a really, (laughs) Well, I don't even know if I covered everything, but that was um, in a nutshell where, where we were. Oh my gosh. I mean, the amount of advocating you had to do as a parent for your kid, you know, to do the biopsy, do we have a say in this? And then to decide against judgments of other people, yes, we're going to New York. We're trying this. It just shows the love and the I mean, pressure, but in a good way, you know, that we have for our kids and we can advocate for them if something doesn't feel right or if something, maybe you heard one opinion and it's just not sitting well and maybe that's the best opinion, but it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to advocate and it's okay to go against the grain of what some people are saying and telling you if for what you believe for your child is best isn't the path that someone else has told you to take. Exactly. And I think that our society really um, is kind of built around your industry experts and doctors and people that you should just listen to and take, you know, what their advice is to heart. And that is kind of the path to go down. And it really, I honestly, I say this all the time. That radiologist who told us he was 99% sure that it was a bone infection. I mean, if he hadn't done that, I think I wouldn't have second guessed so many things down the line because there were so many other little red flags that popped up and people would say, well, how did you even think to question that? I wouldn't have even thought to ask. 
And I'm like, you know what? I think it's because we were told this so with such certainty by this guy who's a super seasoned professional. I mean, he, he was saying what he thought he saw and that is totally valid. And so it made me think, okay, so that is an eye opener that you need to be alert and aware of everything. And if something doesn't quite smell right, you need to, to take further steps to explore it. So I have to say, I'm sort of glad that that happened, even though it was pretty tragic at the time. I agree. And I always say like, as much as our kids, sometimes they question everything and it might just drive us crazy. I want my kids to question everything when they grow up because I'm learning now. I don't just have to listen to someone just because they're a professional or whatnot. Like I should question everything and learn and like be curious and want to know. And I want my kids to feel comfortable doing that too, despite how annoying it might be at the time when I just want them to listen to my answer the first time. (laughs) Totally. Oh my gosh. So I can only imagine how it felt when you heard your child has cancer. Was it just like a I don't even know. How would you describe it? Um, That was very much of like an out of body experience. It Mm -hmm. felt like I was watching a movie and someone else was playing the role of me. (laughs) That's the only way I can describe it. Like I can picture us sitting in this dark hospital room and the somber look on their faces. And I remember thinking I wanted to put on my tennis shoes and just run and just run away to like another reality, like run so far that I would be escape everything around me and somehow come full circle back to like two days ago when things weren't so awful. That was my thought. I was like, I just want to run away. I want to like scoop up this child and just run and like escape this somehow. And I did, I did, I didn't even cry. I didn't. I just shook and I just like stared at the wall and shook. Like I couldn't even emotionally process what was happening and what they were saying. And I remember my husband, Tim, just saying like, I just, he has to outlive me. Like I need him to outlive me. And that like, oh, it was so awful. It was so awful because I was like, that's right. I mean, that's all we want is to protect our kids. And it's so hard to be in a role where like, you feel like you failed. Like, how did I not protect them from this? Even though this is something you never could have prevented, it feels like you could have, or maybe something, if you would have done something slightly different. So that is just so hard. Um, So I don't even think in that moment we even could process what was going on. It was just over the next few days, it kind of peeled back layers. And and what's so hard is when you have such a young child in this, um, going through treatment like this, your job is to be an actor and to be a cheerleader and everything is always going to be fine. And nothing is even scary. And like, we'll sail through whatever we need to get through. Um, I think any age child, you would feel that, that pressure. And so I think we at all times in front of Gus and in front of Susan did a really careful job of, you know, trying to radiate positivity whenever possible. And then 
tucking yourself into a corner or going for a drive and then stabbing your eyes out and unraveling on the phone with a friend or whatever. But like in front of them, you have to be an actor at all times. And that is very exhausting. I can imagine, especially you always hear that when these kids, like my sons, if they just have to get a shot, it's like the world is ending. And then you see these children who have to go through this for a year, you know, of their life. And you see pictures and videos and they're so calm. And how do they process all of that? Is it truly you guys being like, we're doing this together? And are we seeing these like rare moments that really aren't the case? Right. Yeah, I think it's a it's a mix. Um I think there is a part of um, pediatric cancer that is kids hugging teddy bears, you know, like bald kids hugging teddy bears. And there is that moment of it. But I will tell you that it is exposes you to some very unspeakable things and some really harsh situations that um, you kind of walk away with some PTSD. Um, Yeah. and our situation was rosier than a lot of others just because of the circumstances with how, you know, Gus's disease wasn't as advanced as some people and his case was challenging in some ways, but, you know, not as challenging in others. And I think that um, we, we've watched families lose kids. And so you're just, it feels like war. It feels like you're coming back from war. That's the only way I can describe it is because you like are literally stepping over bodies. You're watching people bury kids and you just, that part of it doesn't leave you. And so it is, it's really, really difficult. But I also think to the flip side of that, like you were saying, um, you know, kids become really conditioned to this in a kind of sad way, but also they're so resilient where Gus would be like, oh, we have to get labs today. Oh, I don't want to go get labs. But then he would just go and get labs and like watch them draw out a bunch of blood and just sit there for it. So it was kind of like over time, they build up a, you know, some conditioning to things too. And he would, he would like pull his own labs. Like he would like do use the little suction thing. I mean, he just ate, aged so much, so fast and became so mature. Um, it was kind of crazy. And the other day somebody said, Oh, when's your birthday? And he was like, June 3rd, you know, he had to like check himself. And I'm like, he used to be able to be like, spell everything, date of birth, blood type. Like he knew all his stats because he'd get asked so much and we would, and he heard it over and over. So I was like, I kind of love that he's like forgotten so much of this because he was so young for it. And our surgeon said that he was like, he just wait, just wait. He will, he will not remember this. He will not. And you guys, I'm so sorry, but you will, (laughs) you don't have that luxury, but he won't. And he, and already even when we went to New York and we were like finishing treatment, we were talking about it as a family and we said, Oh my gosh, Gus, can you believe how much you've been through 14 rounds of chemo? Some of the chemo was five days at a time. I mean, that was so harsh on your body and you made it through that. That is uh, incredible. 
we said, yeah, I remember, you, you know, back in Wisconsin, you had seven treatments there. And he said, no, 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 no. I started chemo when we came to New York. And we said, no, Gus, you, we had months of it prior to that. He was like, no. And he was pretty certain that <laughs> he had started chemo when he arrived in New York. And I was blown away by that because it was already happening. We were already watching him forget. And he associated New York with like, we go to the park and, you know, they have hot dogs there and there's a pond where people race sailboats. Like he doesn't remember the, those really trying times like the rest of us do. Mm -hmm. So uh, that element is just incredible. And you just kind of have to channel that and remember, yes, we did make some good memories along the way. And we did grow so much closer as a family and so it is kind of wonderful it's like a little hidden there's these little silver linings and that's one of them for sure when you were talking earlier you said something that stood out to me that when you walked back into your house after two days it was like a different house like Mm -hmm. just looking at it so many things were different now is your whole perspective on life do you feel like it's almost a new awakening like priorities and focuses and all this has changed for you? I do. Um, What I think this is funny because this is something that comes up among um, cancer families all the time. They're like, how great is it to sit in your own kitchen and drink coffee in the morning? Because you have so many mornings in a hospital where like you're drinking pretty horrible coffee out of like a styrofoam cup that maybe some nurse scrounged up for you, or maybe there's a lounge and you went and got coffee, but it's just kind of like you're, it's almost like in college when you're in the dorms, you're like shuffling through the hall with your slippers. It's just, it's just not the thing. And then you like take it back to your hospital room and sit on the edge of your kid's bed and sip your coffee. And it's like, I don't think we took those things for granted. I think we didn't even realize that they were so wonderful. And so we'll have weekends here where we're all here and it just feels like a blessing to me. We're all here under this roof. I don't care if we're doing nothing, but like staring at each other all weekend. This feels like a miracle because there were times, so many times that we were separated and someone was in the hospital with Gus and somebody was back home and it, it never felt like you were in the right place. Like Tim and I would trade places. And so if you were home, you felt like you should be there caring for him. And if you were there caring for him, you were worried about, you know, Susan back here. And so it just felt like you were just torn a hundred directions. And now it's, it's funny. Cause I'll almost catch myself like relaxing. And then I'm like, Oh, gotta stay alert. Gotta stay fresh. <laughs> Don't relax. Don't get complacent. And that is part of it too, is our worldview has shifted where this is our priority now is fighting for these kids, fighting for these families, trying to make things better because it is so rough right now. So that is, yeah, our whole worldview is, is changed. I think for the better. Yeah, I believe it. Tell us about some of these stats of childhood cancer and this specific type of cancer. Yeah, so um, sarcomas are a really small percentage of pediatric cancers. I want to say it's in the like low teens, maybe 14% or something like that. And then I think Ewing is like even a smaller fraction of that. So it's like 1%. Um, 
So there's tons of different forms. Um, a lot of kids get blood cancers or leukemias, and those are their own battles um, that are, you know, years long of treatment um, that are really difficult too. They, they've made more progress, I think, just because there's a bigger population of kids to study. Um, so they have made a little bit more progress with some forms of leukemia. Um, sarcomas, the treatment that, that Gus got, so he got five different chemo drugs, all those drugs, I think the most recent one was from 79 or 80. So all of them are decades old. Like the one drug he got, I think was from like the thirties or forties and they are, um, come with very harsh side effects. Um, one of them, Daxorubicin, is so hard on your heart that you have a lifetime limit to how much your body can endure. And he's received that, meaning if he ever got a drop of Daxorubicin again, he would probably have heart failure. Um, oh, my gosh. And so they've, they've made some progress in terms of medications to combat some of those side effects, but the actual course of treatment hasn't changed in decades. And so it is, it's just horrifying to watch these kids basically risk their life to save their lives. I mean, Gus wasn't sick before he had cancer. His leg hurt one day and then he like had the biopsy and he was in pain and then he was fine. It was the treatment that made him so sick. I mean, he had an NG tube because he couldn't eat. I mean, we were watching him wither away. It was horrifying. So I think that people don't understand how old these drugs are and how little research is done. Um, it, it is such a small patient population that the government doesn't want to spend a ton of time or resources on it. Big Pharma doesn't want to spend a bunch of time or resources on it because the ROI is, is small. But to these families who are watching these kids suffer, and in many cases, they lose their child, it's worth it. You know, I mean, if we can save one kid or prolong their life, it's worth it. So I think that that's something I was blissfully unaware of prior to this. I really didn't understand where we were in the progress and that it's been so stagnant. And just how little funding, it's under 4% of cancer research funded by the government goes to pediatric cancers. That's criminal. It's criminal. And so it's being funded by the families and these actual children are like hosting lemonade stands and fundraisers and selling bracelets to fund their own treatments. I mean, that is... I mean, it's kind of inspiring, honestly, because, wow, I mean, there's kids who are actively in treatment. There's a woman, a young woman in, I think she's down in Illinois, and she's having like rummage sales and selling cupcakes, and she's raising thousands of dollars to find answers for these kids, and she's been actively in treatment through most of it. And so it's it's amazing and inspiring, but it's also sad that that's the financial burden is being carried on the backs of these families. Like how awful is that? Um, so we've developed a relationship with Rally Foundation. They're in Atlanta um, and they fund 
um, all kinds of research for um, rare, but you know, really all pediatric cancers. And so that does help um, channel these dollars because the other problem is if you're a family and you want to help contribute to this, there's a lot of different avenues to go down. And so they have a medical advisory board and they do a really diligent job of tracking these grants, seeing where the money's going and following it closely. So I, I feel, we feel felt really tied to that um, foundation and their um, president and CEO, Dean Crow has become like a really good friend of ours. She came and visited us in New York. I mean, we're talking to her like once a week and she, all through Gus's treatment, she was so great about checking in on, checking in on us and, providing resources. And she introduced us to a scientist. He's in Portland um, at an organization called CCTDI. And they do a lot of um, research and study around really rare and hard to treat cancers. Um, when you started talking at the beginning of this podcast about imagine yourself in this situation where you are handed this diagnosis for your child and you don't have a good avenue to turn down. Um, that is so real. And I think a lot of people, they say, Oh, I just can't imagine that. But like, you can actually, you just don't want to imagine it because yeah. I don't either, because that is so scary. And there are families who like in Gus's case, if he relapses, there is no standard of treatment. There is no course there's no path, nothing's proven. You're just kind of on an island with like three or less horrible choices in front of you and which one are you going to choose and subject your child to. It's, it's awful. And there are people who get diagnoses like that, that there's no standard of treatment for whatsoever. And so it's really difficult to watch. And that's why we feel tied to rally and feel like we need to move the needle in some way. Um, like there, there probably won't be a, there won't be a silver bullet solution to any of this in our lifetime, probably sadly. But I think that um, my hope is that we can come up with maintenance therapies or a different course of treatment to just prolong these lives. So that's, um, yeah, that's how we become, um, involved with, with rally. And, um, they also, I, I don't know if it was Dean or someone else there, I think was someone else who led us to MSK and the team there and, um, saw that as a good avenue for us. Um, I think that the other thing that's been hard for me to watch is the long-term and late effects that these kids have from the treatment. Um, everyone's left with scars, like literal scars, figurative scars, and almost no kid walks out of this without some physical reminder of what they went through. And um, that's really challenging. Like Gus will now have probably three more growing surgeries. They had to take his growth plate. So he'll, he'll have multiple surgeries. He will be in PT for life. I mean, he'll, he'll always have a length discrepancy between his legs. 
Um, so these are just challenges that, that don't go away. And everyone's left with some form of that. And they all look a little different. And my hope is that, you know, we can change the course of these treatments that maybe someday they aren't so harsh and don't rob so much from these children. When you said the thing about, I can't imagine it, but you can, you just don't want to. I just feel like so much of our world, we want to block something out. So if something gets too, you know, tense on our hearts or too emotional, we just like shut it off or don't watch that movie or turn off the radio or pull ourselves away from someone who maybe is going through something and we don't know how to help. So we remove ourselves, but we have to put ourselves in these situations. We have to listen and we have to be willing to open our hearts and experience someone else's experience so that we can make a change because just the people fighting these cancers shouldn't be the only ones on the Island. Like there should be, I was going to try to come up with an analogy of like rescue boats and you right, know a whole right. chain of other people connecting these people back because that's what we can do with power and numbers. Absolutely. You're raising this money on your own backs, like right. lemonade stands, bake sales. And it really does show how much of an impact a parent, a family, a friend can have because you guys are doing this basically by yourself. And if we can all remember that empathy and community can make a huge difference for someone, then we need to spread it as much as we possibly can. Right. We got to listen to it. We got to hear about it. We have to talk about it, even when it might be uncomfortable. Yeah. Because if we don't, there's the island and we're just passing it by, not even paying attention. Right. And if we pay attention, each one of us can make a difference for these families. That's so true. And I, I think about, um, Dean who started rally foundation and she started it because her, I think it was her best friend's child was sick. Um, he had a cancer diagnosis and she asked her friend, what can I do to help? And then she just took that tiny idea and grew it into this foundation that has awarded millions of dollars of grants. Like how powerful is that? That one little like drop caused this ripple and now look like what she's built. I think that's, that's so incredible. And then I think too, on the flip side, it's very hard to ask for and receive help too. Um, that's kind of a societal thing um, that's ingrained in us. Um, at least for me, it is, it's very hard and a real challenge to ask for help. Um, and even when help is offered, it's hard to accept it. And that's a piece of advice I've given other, you know, cancer families is you, you do at some point have to accept help and, and you don't want to wait until it's a really dire situation and actually giving people the chance to help you is like giving them a little gift. It yes. is so weird to think about it that way. Like one of my friends um, was going through breast cancer and she said, Oh, everybody wants to do meal train. And she, she wasn't sure if she wanted to do it. And I said, 
people have like misguided energy. So if you don't give them a way to help, they will find another way. And maybe it, it won't even be a, a, a route that's help, truly helpful to you. So if you can give them a platform, some way to channel their energy, it actually is helpful to them. And she said, oh my gosh, you're right. I remember now, you know, through Gus's treatment, I would say, I'm going to Target. Do you need anything? And a couple times I said, oh yeah, we need like sanitizing wipes or whatever. And I would like feel like I did something today to help with this. And so she's like, you're right. That that's true. And so I think that's hard for people to think about it that way. But I think about it if someone's going through something really hard or challenging in my life and I can actually do something to make a difference for them, that makes me feel so good. And so it, it's just, it's hard to think about it in those terms. I am so glad you brought that up because Colleen and I just did a whole episode about asking for help and how I find it so horribly hard to ask for help. And she, has an easier time with it. Now her family has been through a major tragedy. And I think at that point, you have no other option. You have to accept the help to survive and to keep going. And when you look at it that way, that all these people want to help, they just don't know what to do. And when you give them that gift of, this is what I need you to do, this would help me so much. It's like, they feel like the best human in the world after that, because (laughs) They're not just wandering lost, feeling like they can't help their friend or their family. Right. So I think that's such a good point. You're giving them a gift by telling them what you need. It it totally is. And it's hard during tragedies like that. I mean, people will just drop off blankets or stuffed animals. You know, you're just trying to comfort someone. And that isn't always what they need, but you want so badly to be there for them and just to show your love and support. And so, yeah, I think it is, there, there are moments like this, like for us that you break down and you really have to accept the help. And so then it it does kind of push that envelope a little bit more um, and gives you the nudge to do things like this, like this rally um campaign we're working on right now I was like oh my gosh I don't I don't know if we can do this but Dean asked us to do it and we can't say no to Dean because we call her Saint Dean because she's like the most wonderful person um (laughs) so then we're like now we're gonna like ask people to ask people to donate to this this is so awkward and weird but it, it does it does come to a point where people want to do something um and have it be something meaningful that will actually make a difference. And that's what this is. 100%. I mean, I saw it through our mutual friends, Facebook fundraiser Mm -hmm. post. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And my husband's like, Oh, don't you know them? I know that. I'm like, I don't know. Like what? And he's like, they're such great people. And I'm like, then we're doing something about it. Like what can we do more than just donate? Because it's when you hear these stories, like you just as a stranger want to reach out and feel like I am helping these kids, these families, these hurting people make the tiniest bit of difference. Yep. Yep. So 
I will be asking every single one of you listeners <laughs> at the end of this podcast and right now to maybe forego your Starbucks tomorrow and click the link instead and donate what you can. And if you can't donate, share this episode, spread awareness about this and these stats that are just so heartbreaking because with the more awareness, you never know who it could reach that could then help make an even bigger impact. I'm going to remind you guys again at the end of this episode, but I do want to end with tell us how Gus is doing today. Oh, he is doing so great. Um, we were at PT yesterday and he actually um, accomplished, she had like five goals for the last three months, I think. So he, he was able to check off, I think three of them. Um, so he's doing really, really well. Um, back to school was a little challenging. He and I went to school together last year because he went to school with a brace and a walker and he needed, um, more physical support, um, than they were really equipped to give him. So I kind of went as his aid slash like bodyguard. (laughs) (laughs) So this year, we went from that to now him being in school six hours a day with no one. He has a little like bestie in his class, but it was a huge, huge departure from he and I being conjoined twins for two years to now like just dropping him at the front door of the school. And because of COVID, I can't even go in and like see his class, you know, it's just so different this year. Um, So he did really well with it. And then recently he's been more emotional about it. Like he gives me a huge hug and like 20 kisses before we leave the house because he's like, I don't know if we'll have time when we get to the school building. So I want to make sure I get in really good hugs and kisses now (laughs) before we get in there. I'm like, that's fair. So he's, and then he'll say, I really missed you today, mom. It's really, really cute. Yeah. But he, this is so good for him. He was robbed of two years of like normal social experiences. So even though school looks different now, it's still such a great avenue for him to have this interaction with his peers, um, to have, he is such a wonderful teacher. She's a two-time breast cancer survivor. And so she has this special, special bond with our family. She taught my daughter too. And so she has um, really kept an eye out on like on him for me and been such a good resource for us. So he's doing really, really well. And now we're getting to the point where um, it'll be interesting to see what, uh, where all his interests lie. Um, I know he, he probably won't be able to participate in a lot of like team sports and things like that, just because he'll always have some disability, but I'm anxious to see, you know, what he chooses, what his interests are. And I just feel like, blessed for every single day we have with him he is the comedian of the family who keeps us laughing even when he's not always trying to but he is he's almost like a class clown where I'm a little a little nervous when he to school but of course it was like his homework you know home the other day it was like list two things that start with the letter b and of course one was but because he just can't help himself because he's a classic six-year-old boy. And so it just, it warms my heart to see him being engaged, being with his peers and like looking like a normal 
kid. You know, he went to school last fall. He had no hair. He had a brace. He had a big walker. Um, kids don't really even like bad. And I like we just said, oh, he had surgery, and you know, he's recovering. Whatever. They they're not really bothered like that stuff by like how adults would react. They don't react the same. Um, so this year, it feels so crazy because he like looks and feels and acts normal. Like you would never know. Um, and that's that's so strange. There was a moment when um, he came back to Wisconsin and he had his port removed and they wrote on his leg with like a surgical marker, fragile on his right leg. Cause we were like, now you're gonna, he's gonna be um, unconscious. You're gonna be moving him around. Like, just so you know, this leg is like very much still healing. The bone was not filled in at that point. So like we had a lot of work to do. Um, so he was very fragile. That leg was like literally very fragile, especially without a brace on it. Um, and so they wrote that on his leg and I'm like, I just want to like tattoo that on his leg and like all of ours, all of our like, foreheads, like we're fragile. Like we look normal, we're still fragile. Just yes. handle with care. Like I know we look like we're all together, but we're we're still struggling. But it's and how for sure. Yes. How are you? You know, I'm doing well. I think that um my husband and I have taken um this entire experience as a challenge to um see how we can contribute to this cause. It's, it's kind of like a dark um, humor thing, but there's, there were moments before this when we would say like, I want, you know, what's our like calling and what's our purpose here? We were always kind of trying to think like, what's our, what's our way to give back to our community and our society and world. And then I'm like, okay, didn't need that to be the way to find out what our calling was. Like, right. just, I don't know, we could have done something a little bit lighter, but all right, message received. We will do this now. <laughs> Found our calling in like a really um, intense way. But I think that for Tim and myself, um, it's been very cathartic to help other families. So families who are newly diagnosed and going through these things, um, it would be easier in some ways to just step back and say, we're not, that's not our world anymore. It's not our day to day anymore. And we want to just kind of like turn another direction and pivot, but we've kind of done the opposite and gone like head first into things. So Tim, Tim is a, now the interim CEO for a like biopharma pharma company that um, they're working to, get drugs that are designed for adult cancers or adult diseases that are shelved by these drug companies that they know could make a difference for children, but are just sitting there um, trying to get the rights to those drugs to get them in the hands of these kids and their parents to, to help treat them. So that's um, been a huge um, project for him. And it's certainly no small feat. So he's, he's got his hands full in addition to his full-time job. And then I've been working with rally and then the lab, uh, CCTDI that I mentioned, I'm on the board there. Um, just trying to help them make progress and kind of funding this fight however we can. So I think we're doing 
in um, like the best that we possibly could be. And I think that it's, um, we, we are, we feel like the luckiest of the unlucky because we'd still have our son here with us. He is in remission right now. Not everyone gets that. And so boy, are we blessed. Um, it's hard because you have to go back for scans every three months and like roll the dice and hope and pray that you get clear scans again. So, um, it's certainly still part of our lives, but not in a day-to-day -day way like it was during treatment. So I think we've, we've found our, our path now and will we always have these roles and be this intense? I don't know, but for right now it feels right. And it feels really important. Um, like it's important work to be doing. I mean, and how beautiful to not let your story end with you guys, but to roll that over to other people right. and help them at the beginning of where you were once upon a time. Right. Because I remember there were, you know, a handful of people that provided that for us. And I said, you're like this shining beacon on the horizon that I can sometimes make out in the mist. And it feels like that could be me. That could be our story someday. Like, maybe, maybe we'll get there. And now we're the like, you know, rays of hope for some other people. And so it feels like a powerful role and it comes at a cost certainly, because like I said, not everybody's stories end like this. And there's a lot of tragedy and a lot of heartache, but it, um, it still feels good to be involved and be a shoulder for people when they, when they need that. And because it's really helpful to have someone who's had a similar experience to weigh in on these things. So, oh yeah. my gosh. Well, there's nothing like a parent's fight for their child. And we are totally behind you. I think after listening to this, when you make that connection, which is why we love podcasts so much and why we share our stories and other people's is because I believe that many people listening right now are going to feel like they also know you and they know Gus and his laughing about the word, but, and they can picture it and, you know, they feel like you are a part of their life now and your story is a part of their life. And so everybody, once again, I'm giving you three tasks today. One, please check out the Rally Foundation. Two, follow the link in the show notes and make any donation that you possibly can do you really need those fall boots this year or <laughs> yeah, going anywhere anyway? <laughs> Nobody's going anywhere. Or do you need that cup of coffee? It can be as little or as much as you possibly can. And if you cannot contribute funds, can you share the information and spread awareness? Because the more people know, the more people can help. So please, 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 please do those three things today. And thank you, Heidi, so much for sharing your story and inspiring all of us to go out there and help continue this ripple effect of Thank making you. a difference. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It means so much to like have anyone's attention for any amount of time. I, un I understand what that means. People are busy and um, the world is a little crazy right now. So to have anyone focus on this for even a minute is means everything. I just think you're giving so many people a gift of perspective like a little dose of perspective for their day today that sitting in your kitchen and enjoying that cup of coffee, maybe the most beautiful thing you can do with all of your kids running around your home today. And 
not take any of those things for granted, but even more so, find all the extra, extra beauty and importance in those moments. Definitely. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you so much.